Good evening. Welcome. I'm Lizzie Barker, Stanford Calderwood Director of the Boston Athenaeum, and I'm delighted to welcome you to a program that has been almost nine months in the making, but I know you'll agree that it's worth the wait. I'd like to acknowledge some of the members of our board who have joined us this evening. I see you, Alex Altshuler. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. And I have on good authority, although I'm embarrassed that I'm blinded by the spotlight and not able to see, that we're also joined by Jerry Mitchell and Elizabeth Owens and Creeley Pangaro. Rather than introduce our speakers, I thought I would introduce the introducer of the speakers and explain to you how this program came to be. Many of you will recognize the name Cullen Murphy from his role as editor-at-large at Vanity Fair, from his role at Atlantic Monthly. If you were very astute and read Prince Valiant, you will know that he once wrote for that. But I've known Cullen through a different context, in his role as the chairman of the Board of Trustees of Amherst College, where I previously worked as director of the Mead Art Museum, and where I was truly grateful and astonished when the board chair came through to see exhibitions, not as a homework assignment, but because he was curious about art and ideas. He actually looked at the art and had astute observations. You can imagine then how delighted I was when I decided to move to Boston to work here to find out that not only did Cullen know about the Boston Athenaeum, he was an active member who wrote large portions of his captivating recent book, We Are Rome, right here on the fifth floor. How exciting. You can understand then why when I had a call from Cullen with a very good idea for a possible program that we might schedule this fall, I was excited at the opportunity to follow up. And now I will ask you to join me in welcoming Cullen Murphy here to introduce our speakers and performers for the evening. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, Lizzie, and it's wonderful to be back here at the Athenaeum. And uh, just to follow on your note about the Mead Art Museum, you can imagine it was not a delight to lose Lizzie Barker from Amherst College, but then to find her turning up here in Boston, at, uh, it's kind of the definition of ambivalence. Um, I'm here to introduce a very special performance uh, and the two men who will do the performing. They are not professional actors. They are throwing themselves on your mercy. <laughs> they know in advance that the show is destined to have only one performance. It will open and close tonight. That's how special this show is. So the occasion is the publication of a smart, deeply researched, and hugely entertaining book by Alex Beam called The Feud. It's the story of what began as a deep literary friendship between the critic Edmund Wilson and the novelist Vladimir Nabokov, a friendship that developed over decades and then was violently sundered under circumstances that we will soon learn about. The sundering was accomplished by both parties with the slyest and sharpest of rhetorical knives and, fortunately for us, if not for them, the deed was done in written form and all of the evidence survives. What are we going to see tonight? It's a short performance piece called Dear Bunny, Dear Volodya. It has only two characters, Wilson and Nabokov. It was created by the novelist and playwright Terry Quinn two decades ago, and the words here are taken exclusively from letters and other writings by the two combatants. In a compact 50 minutes, it describes a ripening friendship and the events that eventually undermined it. At its first performance at Manhattan's Mercantile Library in 1997, the part of uh, Vladimir Nabokov, Volodya, was played by his son, Dmitri. The part of Edmund Wilson, Bunny, was played by William F. Buckley, Jr. We're doing better tonight. <laughs> so tonight, Alex Beam will be channeling Nabokov, and Alex's editor, Jerry Howard, will be channeling Wilson. Jerry Howard actually attended that 
and he's not an old guy, but he actually attended that performance at the Mercantile Library. And when preparing for his role tonight, found the playbill for it stuck in his copy of Simon Kerlinski's Nabokov-Wilson letters. So a word about our performers. Jerry Howard is an executive editor in the Knopf Doubleday Group. His essays and reviews have appeared in many, many places, New York Times, Book Review, N Plus One, Slate, Book Forum. And uh, he is known to admirers of David Foster Wallace as the editor who discovered Wallace's work and published his first two books. Jerry's Edmund Wilson obsession uh, dates from 1976, when Tom Stoppard mentioned in his playbill notes for the play Travesties that one of his key sources was Wilson's classic book, To the Finland Station. Jerry graduated from Cornell in 1972, and he says he has often been asked, oh, did you take a course from Nabokov? To which he always wants to reply, but says he never does. How old do you think I am anyway? <laughs> Alex Beam is a Boston Globe columnist who can also be heard uh, weekly on WGBH with Jim Brody and Marguerite, Marjorie Egan. Before joining the Globe in 1987, Alex worked for Business Week and was based for several years in Moscow, where his father, a diplomat, had also once been posted. He has written two novels about Russia and four nonfiction books about a variety of subjects, including McLean Hospital and the murder of the Mormon leader, Joseph Smith. That's two different books. <laughs> 30 years ago, Alex also wrote the introduction to Ari Zahn's Political Jokes of Leningrad, which no library should be without, and which I noticed this afternoon you can buy on Amazon, Amazon for one cent. His Russian is not as good as Nabokov's, but it's a lot better than Edmund Wilson's. Alex's new book about the feud has been getting terrific re reviews, and deservedly so. It is stylish, sad, funny, pointed, shrewd, and addictive, and somehow broad and narrow at the same time. And it's short. So there will be time for questions after the performance, but uh, Jerry and Alex, Bunny and Volodya, on with the show. Спасибо, спасибо. Dreadfully sorry I didn't see you when you passed through here. We hope to get down to Boston the weekend of the 20th. Couldn't we arrange something for Saturday or Sunday if you were there? We had several splendid days in Vermont. I'm sorry that clashed with your arrival in Boston. I am sorry that I did not have a chance to stop off in Cambridge, but had to come straight to New York. We would have enjoyed coming hugely, but we have hundreds of humdrums to do. We're leaving on the 21st We from are absolutely Utah. counting on you for Thanksgiving. To let us down would be inexcusable because we are going to order a turkey of a size based on the Don't assumption that you will that all turkey. be here. Don't order the turkey. Dimitri has a bad cold again with fever. We should hate to have to wire you at the last moment. And all say, these matters will absolutely coming. necessitate your coming up here in November. The dentist said there's no question of my going to Cape Cod. I'm bitterly disappointed. Everybody is extremely disappointed that you are not coming up for Thanksgiving. Couldn't you make it someday next week before we... Dear Bunny. Dear Volodya. August 30th, 1940. My dear Mr. Wilson, my cousin Nicholas has suggested my writing to you. I would be very happy to meet you. I'm staying with friends in Vermont, goldenrod and wind mostly, but she'll be back in New York in the second week in September. Dear Nabokov, this review of Rustveli is admirable and very entertaining. In doing future reviews, please follow exactly the New Republic usage, giving the title, author, etc. at the top. Another thing, do please refrain from puns, to which I see you have a slight propensity. 
they are pretty much excluded from serious journalism here. Also, the expression, I for one, is not precisely in the tone of reviewing. You ought simply to say, I, or if you want to emphasize it, for myself or for my part. Won't you call me up soon and come in and have lunch again? Yours sincerely, Edmund Wilson. I want to speak to you about your book, To the Finland Station. I enjoyed it immensely. It's beautifully composed. You're extraordinarily unbiased, although here and there I did notice two or three little thistles of conventional radicalism sticking to your freely flowing gown. Your clearing up of Marxism's difficulties would have maddened Marx. Personally, I think you've oversimplified his ideas somewhat too drastically without its obscurities and abracadabra, without its pernicious reticences, shamanic incantations, and magnetic trash. Marxism isn't Marxism. You won't be irritated by my criticizing certain passages. I felt it would be somehow unfair to your very important book if I did not express the whirl of thought that its shimmering propeller produced. Dear Vladimir, this translation of Anchar is the best Pushkin translation and one of the best translations of poetry of any kind I ever saw. The only thing I criticize is his neighbors in the last line. Would the dwellers be better? The poet is also excellent. You've got the compression and the energy of language, which is what the translators usually don't get. I think you really ought to publish these two. I'll send them to the Partisan Review if you like. Dear Bunny, I'm so glad that you like them. In a couple of years, I'll be doing that kind of thing much better. I just read your Sebastian Knight, of which Lachlan has sent me proofs, and it's absolutely enchanting. You and Conrad must be the only examples of foreigners succeeding in English in this field. The whole book is brilliant and beautifully done. Sebastian's ghost makes you a bow to the ground. I'm very happy that you like that little book. As I think I told you, I wrote it five years ago in Paris on an implement called a bidet as a writing desk. We lived in one room. I had to use our tiny bathroom as a study. Dear Bunny, I think you've received a letter from the Guggenheim Society to which I've applied for a grant. My fiscal position is becoming disastrous. I gave you as a reference. I so bitterly envy your intimacy with English words, tumbling them as you do, that it seems rather silly to send you the poem you'll find on a separate page. I've been pining away ever since the chairman of a women's club where I'd been reading my verse said to me with a lyrical leer, what I loved best was the broken English. <laughs> Dear Vladimir, by the way, are you an American citizen? I believe this may make some difference to the Guggenheim people. I got that Guggenheim fellowship. Thank you, dear friend. I've noticed that whenever you're involved in any of my affairs, they're always successful. Do think seriously about undertaking a book with me. We could get a considerable advance for it right down. I could sell the idea to Doubleday and perhaps get them to take your novel, too. Dear Bunny, I'm returning the proofs of your notes on Russian literature. Vera and I liked both this and the other article enormously. Went to the dentist yesterday. Some of my teeth had little red cherries, abscesses, and the man in white was pleased when they came out whole together with the crimson ivory. My tongue feels like somebody coming home and finding his furniture gone. We are terribly sorry to hear about your crisis. Don't let them pull out too many. They tend to overdo this in America. I have a lot of ideas about our proposed book, but I shall hope to see you to discuss them. If you are hard up with all that dentistry, I wish you would let me lend you the money to come up here. I am rich for the first time in my life. I should like to come Friday evening, if possible. I'm now armed with a tip-top plop-plopping plate. I got a letter from the New Republic asking me to review a couple of books. I'm in a bilious mood. I hope that both books are comfortably bad. <laughs> the editor of Pocket Books has just asked me to do an anthology of Russian short stories. I referred him to you. He wanted to know whether your political point of view was such that you would be unwilling to include Soviet stories, and I told him I didn't think so. If you do it, you ought to get at least $1,000. Happy New Year to you all. Dear Bunny, thanks for suggesting me to the publisher of Russian stories. From the literary material produced during 25 years of the Soviet rule, I could select maybe a dozen readable shorts. I think that my main grudge against the good old Soviets is that they produce such execrable, execrable literature. 
But as I say with a little tact, I probably could choose a few eatable plums out of the rot, although I shall feel like a beggar rummaging in a garbage can. I'm sending you back the socks you lent me and a sample of my translation of Eugene Onegin. The Onegin fragment is good. Catherine White, one of the creators of The New Yorker, who has been living for some years in Maine, has come back to work. One of her ideas is to get you to do stories for them. She has torn out all your things in the Atlantic and is very anxious to meet you when you come in. You know, I've reread our contract carefully. It's really a masterpiece on your part. And I also received a check for $750 from Doubleday. I must say, this solves a lot of financial worries. I want to thank you very sincerely, dear Bunny, for your arranging this matter. It was grand of you. And I really keep feeling that my contribution doesn't quite live up to my share. I like your Ben Sinister very much. I'm eager to see the rest of it. I have made some suggestions on the manuscript. I think there are three English verbs that you do not handle with quite a short touch. Discern, reach, and shun, which you sometimes confuse with shirk. Otherwise, it is very well written. My only possible criticism would be that you sometimes write slightly involved sentences. About Eugene Onegin, you are doing remarkably well with it, but don't you think shorter things are perhaps more in order? We can't have the whole work which has, besides, been several times, though badly enough, translated lately. I've received from the American Poet magazine a request for translation of Russian poets, quote, especially the soldier poets of today, they said. I was down with the flu and wrote a rather irritated letter, saying that I didn't know any soldiers' verses except casual bits, which are even inferior to the kind of war stuff written by soldiers of other companies. I feel that somehow I might have committed a gaffe. Do you know these people? I heard from those American poet people, too, and sent them a copy of this card, which I commend to you as a model. Edmund Wilson regrets that it is impossible for him to read manuscripts, write articles or books to order, do editorial work, judge literary contests, make after-dinner speeches, appear on television, allow his name to be used on letterheads, supply personal information about himself, Receive unknown, persons about, uh, receive unknown persons who have no apparent business with him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've enjoyed your book on Gogol. The best parts are brilliant. The exposition of Poshloss, perfect and valuable. It does seem to me, though, that in some connections you've gone out of your way to be rather silly and perverse about the subject. I've done a review for The New Yorker in which, since I haven't received that large basket of fruit, which I've been daily inspecting, I've sharply taken you to task. From my Nikolai Gogol, quote, a bad play is more apt to be good comedy or good tragedy than the incredibly complicated creations of such men as Shakespeare or Gogol. From my review in The New Yorker, Mr. Nabokov has written the kind of book which can only be written by one artist about another an essay which takes its place with a very small body of first-rate criticism of Russian literature in English. Nabokov's Gogol must be henceforth read by anybody who has any serious interest in finding out about Russian culture. The chief faults of Mr. Nabokov's book are due to the fact that he is fundamentally a fiction writer and that Gogol, having been a real man, does not lend himself to the author's accomplished technique of sudden sidelights and juxtaposed glimpses quite so readily as if he had been a character invented by Nabokov himself. Dear Volodya, I shall transcribe a passage from a letter from Polly Boyden, a passage which will, I am sure, be gratifying to your insatiable and narcissistic vanity. I read Nabokov's Gogol, she says, by accident and liked it so much, I bought the Sebastian Knight. I think Nabokov is more inescapably the artist than anyone I have ever met personally, and it chilled my blood while I was reading those remarkable books to realize that I actually had met him, like seeing Shelley Plain. I'm sorry I haven't had a chance to see more of you this winter. Our conversations have been among the few con consolations of my literary life through these last years, when my old friends have been dying, petering out, or getting more and more neurotic, and the general state of the world has been so discouraging for what used to be called the humanities. Love to Vera and Dimitri. I hope to see you all in the fall. As ever, Bunny W. 
We may go to someplace in New Hampshire in July. The correspondence we've had in this respect has proved quite instructive. Quote, modern comfort means there's a water closet, but no bath. Christian clientele is still more amusing and about as tempting. <laughs> Two or three weeks ago, I sold a story to the New Yorker and was paid very handsomely for it. Unfortunately, a man called Ross started to edit it. And I wrote to Mrs. White telling her that I could not accept any of those ridiculous and exasperating alterations, odds and ends inserted to link up ideas and make them clear to the average reader. <laughs> Nothing like this has ever happened to me in my life. I'm always quite willing to have my grammar corrected, but I've now made it clear to the New Yorker there'll be no more revising or editing of my stories. I was terribly angry. To Catherine White at the New Yorker, Dear Catherine, I have read the Nabokov stories, and I think they are both perfect. Not a word should be changed. From the way you talked about signs and symbols, I had imagined something like the work of the French naturalists at their most malodorous and ghoulish. But the details in Nabokov's story are of the most commonplace kind. I don't see how anybody could misunderstand the story, as you people seem to have done, or could object to the details in themselves. And the fact that any doubt should have been felt about them suggests a truly alarming condition of editor's days. <laughs> Suffer from it myself. Dear Bunny, we've spent most of the summer in Wellesley. I've given up smoking. I've grown tremendously fat. We've passed our citizenship examinations. I know all the amendments. Dear Volodya, I have been living, as you probably know, uh, I, I have been having, as you probably know, a great deal of domestic agony and I'm now living alone in, New York, in a New York house where I'd be delighted to put you and the whole family up. Love to Vera and Dimitri, as ever. I heard about your and Mary's domestic affairs soon after our last meeting in New York. I hope the whole thing somehow would be settled, but from what you write, I deduce that it has not. I don't know what to say to you, except that I've been feeling very much upset about the whole matter, especially as I did not hear from you directly and had to sift and combine various rumors. Tell me, why do you think that Hamlet has always been so popular on the stage in the English-speaking countries? Of course it's good, but this can't be the reason. Several of Shakespeare's other plays ought to be more dramatically effective. It's true that it gives the star a fat part, but there must be something more to it than this. Do give me the benefit of your opinion on this matter. There are several reasons why Hamlet, even in the hideous garbled versions currently on the stage, should be attractive both to the caviar eater and the groundling. One, everybody likes to see a ghost on the stage. Two, kings and queens are always attractive. Three, the number and variety of lethal arrangements are unsurpassed and thus most pleasing. A, murder by mistake. B, poison in dumb show. C, suicide. D, bathing, tree climbing casualty. E, duel. F, poison again. Other attractions backstage. I hear from people who have seen you that you are becoming stout, optimistic, and genial. In other words, Americanized. <laughs> I believe that I had already noticed traces of this in your letters, and I'm not sure that I entirely approve. <clears throat> I weigh 195 pounds. <laughs> Dear Bunny, I was wrong in saying there were no Russians in Sherlock. It's queer I should have forgotten the lady nihilist who lost her pants nays or the lovely sentence he was an elderly man, thin, demure, and commonplace, by no means the conception one forms of a Russian nobleman. I just read your book, Memoirs of Hecate County, in one swallow. There's so many wonderful things in it. You've given your narrator's copulation mates such formidable defenses, leather and steel, gonorrhea, horse gums, that the reader, well, at least one reader, for I would have been absolutely impotent in your singular little harem, this reader derives no kick from the hero's lovemaking. I should have soon as tried to open a sardine can with my penis. The, res <laughs> the result is awfully chaste, despite the frankness. I'm really looking forward to seeing you. Your book is causing quite a sensation among my literary friends here. Dear Volodya, nihilist is pronounced the way I pronounce it, not nihilist. See any dictionary. Thanks for your letter, but you sound as if I had made an unsuccessful attempt to write something like Fanny Hill. 
The frozen and unsatisfactory character of the sexual relations is a very important part of the central theme of the book, indicated by the title, which I'm not sure that you have grasped. I've just finished Ben's Sinister. It took me four years to compose. Now I'm resting comfortably with the rubber red infant at my side. I've written Doubleday to hurry up. They've been reading my novel since May. They must know it by heart. I've been using the time to reread Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. The latter's a third-rate writer. His fame is incomprehensible. I'm very anxious to know more about your so-called trial. Hecate County is as pure as a block of ice in a surgical laboratory. Dear Volodya, my Hecate obscenity case was heard in early November, and the decision is to be handed down the 27th. Do drop me a line out here. I'm anxious to read the end of your novel, Love to Vera, as ever, Edmund W. Ben Sinister's gone to the printers. Something inside me is insisting that I would like you to judge of the thing, only in its final form, especially as I've altered considerably the first chapters so that you haven't seen the novel at all yet. I want it to come to you whole as a nice, solid surprise, a kind of wedding present. Dear Volodya, Hecate County was convicted in New York by a vote of two to one. Double A is going to appeal it. It is all an awful nuisance and is putting a crimp in my income. About Henry James, it's possible, as Ezra Pound says, to get no impression of him at all if you begin by reading the wrong things. But once you have read him at his best and got an idea of his literary development, almost everything he wrote becomes interesting. I think that almost all his long novels tend to run into the sands in the second volume and that some of the shorter ones are more satisfactory. Be sure to read in the New York edition the volume that contains What Maisie Knew, In the Cage, and The Pupil. These stories are among my favorites. Dear Bunny, I've read or actually reread What Maisie Knew. It's terrible. Maybe there's some other Henry James that I'm continuously hitting on the wrong one. I'm finally sending you my novel. Needless to say, your opinion of Ben Sinister, you know all that. Yours, Volodya. I was rather disappointed in Ben Sinister about which I had had some doubts when I was reading the parts you showed me, and I'll give you my opinion for what it is worth. I know that Alan Tate is tremendously excited about it. He told me that he considered it a great book, but I feel that though it is crammed with good things, brilliant writing and amusing satire, it is not one of your great successes. I too had my doubts as to whether you'd appreciate the atmosphere of my book, especially when you praised Malraux. In historical and political matters, you're a partisan of a certain interpretation which you regard as absolute. This means that we will have many a pleasant tussle and that neither of us will ever yield an inch of ground. I'm writing another book, which I think you'll like better. Vera joins me in sending our love. I'm going to try to get a good review for your novel. I don't want to do it myself because I don't want to say that you're a great writer, but I don't think Ben Sinister shows you at your best. I'm writing two things right now a new type of autobiography, sort of a scientific attempt to unravel and trace back all the tangled threads of one's personality. And I'm working on a short novel about a man who liked little girls. It's going to be called The Kingdom by the Sea. Dear Bunny, you naively compare my attitude towards the Soviet regime to that of a ruined and humiliated American southerner towards the wicked north. You must know me and Russian liberals very little if you fail to recognize the amusement and contempt with which I regard Russian emigres whose hatred of the Bolsheviks is based on a sense of, fin on a sense of financial loss or class degrangolade. <sighs> well, except for your excursions into the economic social, which is most perverse and distressing coming from you, I liked your Tolstoy piece very much. Just keep it down. Keep down the ideological content, for God's sakes. Was it you and Vera who were complaining to me about not finding Faulkner rewarding? I have just read his light in August, which seems to me most remarkable, and, as I have an extra copy, am sending it to you. Do read it. I'm appalled at your approach to Faulkner. It's incredible you even take him seriously. Rather, it's incredible that you should be so fascinated by his message, whatever that is, as to condone his artistic mediocrity. You're one of the few people in the world whom I keenly miss when I don't see them. I'm in good health, and my academic job is vastly more comfortable and less interfering than it was at Wellesley. My huge butterfly work is soon coming out. 
than the Arctic members of the genus Lycetes Hubner. I'll send you a copy. Best love to both of you from both of us. I am curious to know whether or not you ever read Light in August. Of course, he has no message and is merely interested in dramatizing life. In spite of his carelessness, I should think he would be rather congenial to you. I have been reading him spellbound lately. I think he is the most remarkable contemporary American novelist. I have never been able to understand how you manage, on the one hand, to study butterflies from the point of view of their habitat, and on the other, to pretend that it is possible to write about human beings and leave out of the account all question of society and environment. I have come to the conclusion that you simply took over in your youth the fin de siècle, art for art slogan, and have never thought it out. I shall soon be sending you a book of mine, The Triple Thinkers, which may help you straighten out these problems. <laughs> art for art's sake doesn't mean anything unless the term art is defined. First give me your definition of it, then we can talk. I've carefully read Faulkner's Light in August, which you so kindly sent me, and it has in no way altered the low, to put it mildly, opinion I have of his work and other innumerable books in the same strain. I detest these puffs of stale romanticism coming all the way up from Marlinsky and Hugo. You remember the latter's horrible combination of starkness and hyperbole. L'homme regardait le gibet, le gibet regardait l'homme. Elena and I are reading Chekhov aloud in the evenings. She can pronounce the words, which I can't, but hasn't as much literary vocabulary as I. We really need somebody to coach us, and I hope you will give us a lesson when we see you again. Dear Bunny, your reference to Keats in regard to Onegin is absolutely and beautifully to the point. There's a terrible mistake, by the way, in your account of the Onegin-Lensky duel. I can't imagine what made you think that it was a back-to-back, march, face-about-fire affair popularized in the movies and cartoons. That didn't exist at all in Pushkin's Russia. The duel in Onegin is the classical duel à volonté of the French code. Your translation of the Bronze Horseman, by the way, is first rate. I'm going to use it in my classes. I'm going to tell them I did it myself. <laughs> Dear Volodya, thank you for your letter. I am glad to be straightened out about the dueling technique in Eugene Onegin. But what you say doesn't alter the fact that Onegin is made to take stealthy advantage of Lenski because he really hates him, which, as I remember, you once denied. Thanks for the butterfly monograph. I don't know why I didn't reply to your last letters. Perhaps they weren't as brilliant as usual. I still have about 50 pages of my book to go, and my little motor is running sweetly. I'm afraid you may not care for the thing, but I have to get it off my chest. Down with Faulkner! <laughs> Dear Volodya, I have been reading the works of Genet. I suppose you know about him. His books, which are hair-raisingly indecent, are only now being brought out in editions that are sold in the regular way. He is a homosexual burglar who has spent a good deal of time in prison. Cocteau, when he was trying to get him out of jail, is supposed to have told the authorities that Genet was the greatest living French writer, and I think there is something to be said for this opinion. I'll lend you Notre Dame des Fleurs sometime if you haven't seen it. Dear Bunny, do send me the homosexual burglar's book. I love indecent literature. Next year, I'm teaching a course called European Fiction of the 19th and 20th centuries. What English writers would you suggest? I have to have at least two. I have sent you the Genet book, and I'm curious to know what you will think of it. I am fascinated by the language, a combination of argot, ordinary colloquialisms, very fancy literary vocabulary, and precise technical terms. About the English novelist, in my opinion, the two incomparably greatest, leaving Joyce out of the account as an Irishman, are Dickens and Jane Austen. Try rereading, if you haven't done so, the later Dickens of Bleak House and Little Dorrit. Jane Austen is worth reading all through. Even her fragments are remarkable. Well, many thanks for lending me the Genet, which I read with pleasure. It's awfully good in, in parts. I have the impression it was written by a literateur in the quiet of his study. That whole tough blood murder edition is poor and artificial with Raskolnikovian echoes. The pièce de résistance, of course, is divine, and she's beautifully done. I liked the measurements of the penis given for the lovers. Come to think of it, I applied the same descriptive method to my butterflies. <laughs> I was a little disappointed by there being no girls around. The only jeune putain was sandwiched between two boys kissing each other, the idiots. Thanks for the suggestion concerning my fiction course. I dislike Jane. 
I'm prejudiced, in fact, against all women writers. They're in another class. Could never see anything in Pride and Prejudice. But the Dickens suggestion is a good one. I'll take Stevenson instead of Jane A. You are mistaken about Jane Austen. I think you ought to read Mansfield Park. Her greatness is due precisely to the fact that her attitude toward her work is like that of a man that is of an artist and quite unlike that of the typical woman novelist who exploits her feminine daydreams. Jane Austen approaches her material in a very objective way. She wants not to express her longings, but to make something perfect that will stand. She is, in my opinion, one of the half dozen greatest English writers, the others being Shakespeare, Milton, Swift, Keats, and Dickens. Stevenson is second rate. I'm in the middle of Bleak House. Great stuff. I have to go to Boston to have six lower teeth extracted. My plan is to go there Sunday the 28th, grunt at the dentist Monday and Tuesday, then mumble back toothless to Ithaca. Keeping up this exchange is like keeping up a diary. You know what I mean. Please don't give up. I love your letters. I very much liked your New Yorker poem, The Room, but it involves a false accent on automobile, which evidently betrays your mistaken ideas about English metrics. Automobile. If you insist on having a primary or strong secondary accent, awe, then you're really making two words out of it, auto and mobile. Then you can never use automobile in iambic or trochaic verse unless you accent mo, and that's vulgar. <laughs> Once and for all, you should tell yourself that in these questions of prosody, no matter which language is involved, you're wrong, I'm right, <laughs> always. <laughs> it's impossible to use automobile gracefully in iambic verse at all. You'd have to use anapests or dactyls. That line you wrote is something that would be stumbled over by any native English-speaking word, and it demonstrates the fallacy of your stress theory. Good luck with your teeth. Dear Bunny, I don't understand the observation you made last time I saw you about the word nihilist. In Russian, it's pronounced nihilist, with accent on the last syllable. My observation on nihilist was prompted by your having corrected my pronunciation apparently under the impression that the first syllable in English was pronounced ni. It's only today that I have a moment to thank you for your classics and commercials. There's a lot of things in it that are superb, especially the attacks and the fun. As with most good critics, your war-crying voice is better than your hymn-singing one. Your bit on Gogol and me contains various things I don't seem to remember seeing in the original version. The reader is annoyed by the frequent self-indulgent of the author, imposes perversities and vanities that sound as if he had brought them away from the St. Petersburg of the early 1900s and piously preserved them in exile, and along with them, a kind of snapping and snarling on principle at everything connected with the Russian Revolution that sometimes throws the baby out with the bloodbath to be guilty of a species of witticism to which Nusser Nabokov is much addicted and which tends also a little to disfigure his book. His puns are particularly awful. Aside from this, in spite of some errors, Mr. Nabokov's mastery of English almost rivals Joseph Conrad's. I protest against that last line. Conrad knew how to handle ready-made English better than I, but I know better the other kind. He never sinks to the depths of my solecisms but neither does he scale my verbal peaks. Dear Bunny, I have decided to welcome all kind and manner of publicity from now on. I'm sick of having my books muffled up in silence like gems in cotton wool. The letters from private individuals I get are in their wild enthusiasm, ridiculously incommensurable with the lack of interest my inane and inept publishers take in my books. And I have no intention whatever to come down to human interest stuff. I shall have to remain in the realm of what fools call experimental literature. I'll face the consequences. I'm underpaid here in a ridiculous and insulting manner. I love to complain. That's why I'm telling you all of this. Dear Volodya, you can't be any more broke than I am. I have never been so badly in debt in my life. Dear Bunny, I'm really very eager to turn Anyagin into English with all the trappings and thousands of notes. 
from, my published, from the volume of my published journals titled The Fifties. Now that I am reading and reading up on Goethe, I remember Volodya Nabokov saying, horrible goatee. He made a point of mispronouncing the name as he did Freud's. I can see now why Goethe as a writer would be inconceivable to him. Nabokov's idea of a literary work of art is something in the nature of a Fabergé Easter egg or, a or other elaborate knick-knack. Dear Bunny, we're having a grand time here at Harvard. Twice a week I thunder against Cervantes from the pulpit before an abyss of more than 500 students, and I twist Dostoevsky's arm in a Russian lit class. Nabokov has just discovered that Stendhal is a complete fraud and is about to break the news to his class. He has also read Don Quixote for the first time and declares it worthless. We have a very charming ramshackle house with lots of bibelots and a good bibliothèque rented to us by a charming lesbian lady, Mae Sarton. He has made a translation of Eugene Onegin with an enormous commentary that emphasizes, needless to say, the stupidities of other translators and editors. The translation is good, I think. He has more or less accepted my method in the passages I translated of following the text exactly and writing lines of irregular length with a metrical base of iambic pentameter. You know, I read a collection of Henry James's short stories. Miserable stuff, it's a complete fake. You ought to debunk that pale porpoise and his plush vulgarities someday. Dear Volodya, this job of mine at Princeton is a dream. I have urged them to invite you, and they talk as if they would, but they have a list of about 70 names. I wish you could come down here. Thanks from both of us for your new collection, The Shores of Light. I think I'm going to read or reread those pieces with great pleasure with some nasty bit of criticism popping out of me at the least expected moment. I'm writing nicely in an atmosphere of great secrecy. I shall show you, when I return east, an amazing book. Dear Bunny, I've been wanting to write you for months, but this has been and still is for me a long while yet of great labors. The novel I've been working on for at least five years was promptly turned down by Viking and Simon and & Schuster, the two publishers I showed it to. They say it will strike readers as pornographic. I consider this novel to be my best thing in English, and though the theme and situation are decidedly sensuous, its art is pure, and it's fun riotous. I'd like you to look at it sometime. Pat Cavici said we'd all go to jail if the thing were published. I feel rather depressed about this fiasco. Dear Volodya, by all means, send me your book. I'd love to see it. And if nobody else is doing it, I'll try to get my publisher Strauss to. Thank you. Thanks for your nice letter and for writing Farrar Strauss about the thing. It's still in Laughlin's large hands. I'm very anxious for you to read it. It's by far my best work in English. Roger Strauss lent me the manuscript of your book, and I read it when I was in New York, though rather hastily because I had to give it back. I wanted to write you about I waited to write to you about it until I could get some other opinions. I also had Elena and Mary read it. I am afraid that you will never get the book published by anybody, except perhaps Lachlan. I have, however, talked about it to Jason Epstein at Doubleday. Now, about Lolita. I like it less than anything else of yours I have read. The short story that it grew out of was interesting, but I don't think the subject can stand this very extended treatment. Nasty subjects may make fine books, but I don't feel you've got away with it. It isn't merely that the characters in the situation are repulsive in themselves, but that, presented on this scale, they seem quite unreal. The various goings-on and the climax at the end have, for me, the same fault as the climaxes of Ben Sinister and Laughter in the Dark. They become too absurd to be horrible or tragic, yet remain too unpleasant to be funny. I think, too, that in this book there is, what is unusual with you, too much background description of places, etc. This is the one thing that makes me agree with Roger Strauss in feeling that the second half drags. I wish I could like the book better. Dear Elena and Bunny, belatedly, but with perfectly preserved warmth, I now want to thank you for your letters. Elena's was especially charming. Doubleday has, of course, returned the manuscript. I've now shipped it off to France. I suppose it will finally be published by some shady firm with a Viennese dream name. I spent Monday and Tuesday with the Nabokovs in Ithaca. He is an associate professor with life tenure, 
but is a little apprehensive about what will happen when the new book about which I have been telling you comes out, since it seems they can dismiss you for moral turpitude. My novel about the Russian professor Panin is progressing very slowly. I sold another chapter to The New Yorker. I've sold Lolita to Olympia Press in Paris. It will probably come out this summer. Rav, who had offered to print sections of it in partisan, has changed his mind on the advice of a lawyer. It depresses me to think that this pure and austere work may be treated by some flippant critic as a pornographic stunt. This danger is the more real to me since I realize that even you neither understand nor wish to understand the texture of this intricate and unusual production. I am glad that you're doing a novel about Panin. Dear Bunny, the British government has asked the French Minister of the Interior to ban books in English de detrimental to the morals of British and American tourists. France complied. A number of French newspapers have voiced their indignation. L'affaire Lolita is in full swing, sick of teaching. I'm wasting so much time here. Dear Volodya, it is absurd and characteristic of the British that they should take steps to ban an English book in France. <laughs> With a dense glaucous cold in my head and horse as a horse, I lectured the other day through the fog of my throat on Dostoevsky's memoirs from a mouse hole. I'm completely engrossed in my Onegin. I must finish that this year. It's the fifth or sixth complete version I've made. I'm now breaking it up, banishing everything that honesty might deem verbal velvet, and in fact, welcoming the awkward turn, the fishbone of the meager truth. More miseries. Most of the teeth in my upper jaw have suddenly fallen out. Do you have a good dentist? I hope that Lolita, as a study of amorous paternity and delinquent girlhood, will touch the American public to the point of making your fortune. If you can get her married to Penin in Alaska and bring them home to life tenure in some comfortable Middle Western university, you may be able to compete in popularity with Marjorie Morningstar <laughs> and be lecturing on young people's problems from Bangor to San Diego. In bed with facial neuralgia, I haven't heard from you since the beginning of the pre-snow era. How are you? I've just completely completed my Eugene Onegin. 2,500 pages of commentaries and a literal translation of the text. Dimitri's doing the index. I am sick of teaching, sick of teaching, sick of teaching. Dear Bunny, after spending four rather hectic months in Europe, we plan to return home. We'll sail on the United States on February 19th, spend two or three days in New York, and then travel on to Los Angeles, where we intend to remain at least six months. I gather from your Hollywood destination that Lolita is going into the movies. We are in Los Angeles, where we found a charming house in a blooming canyon full of good butterflies. We live very quietly. My main occupation is a screenplay I'm making, but I'm also occupied in reading the proofs of Onegin. Well, that's just a few lines to keep in touch with you. In a few months, it will be 20 years since we first met. Yours, Valodia. Dear Bunny, it was great to see you here in Montreux after all those years and to resume so fluently our natural intercourse. From the volume of my published journals titled The Sixties, the hotel in Montreux was palatial indeed. Huge rooms with huge beds and armchairs and chaise long, very Victorian at the season. Almost nobody there if you bridge playing English lady, elderly English ladies. We found Volodya Nabokov living, as Elena said, like a prince of the old regime. He was more amiable and a more genial host than I had ever known him to be. The ready money had made all the difference. He hunts butterflies in the summer, and in the winter they see almost nobody. I was surprised to find out that what he would most like to do is get one of these sinecures of writer-in-residence at some American college. To Barbara Epstein, editor of the New York Review of Books. Dear Barbara, the Nabokov Pushkin has come. I shall take it to Talcottville and go through it very carefully. Hope to get you the article by the end of summer. Just looking through it, I can see that Volodya's translation is almost as much open to objection as Arndt's. It is full of flat writing, outlandish words, and awkward phrases. And some of the things he says about the Russian language are inaccurate. To Barbara Epstein, editor, New York Review of Books, I wired you yesterday 
Please save space in your next issue for my thunder. Well, here it is. For reasons I explain, I've limited my reply to refuting the Russian part of Edmund Wilson's article. Its offensive tone compels me to be quite ruthless in regard to his linguistic incompetence. On the other hand, though well aware of the real reason behind this attack, I consider that far too sad and private to be aired in print. From The Strange Case of Pushkin and Nabokov, published in the New York Review of Books, July 15, 1965. Vladimir Nabokov's translation of Pushkin's Eugene Onegin is something of a disappointment. And the reviewer, though a personal friend of Mr. Nabokov, for whom he feels a warm affection, sometimes chilled by exasperation, and an admirer of his work, does not propose to mask his disappointment. From the New York Review of Books, August 26, 1965, as Mr. Wilson so justly proclaims in the beginning of the strange case of Pushkin and Nabokov, we are indeed old friends. I fully share the warm affection, sometimes chilled by exasperation, that he says he feels for me. In the 1940s, during my first decade in America, he was most kind to me in various matters, not necessarily pertaining to his profession. I've always been grateful to him for the tact he showed in refraining from reviewing any of my novels. We've had many exhilarating talks. We've exchanged many frank letters. Since Mr. Nabokov is in the habit of introducing any job of this kind, which he undertakes by an announcement that he is unique and incomparable, and that everybody else who has attempted it is an oaf and an ignoramus, incompetent as a linguist and a scholar, usually with the implication that he is also a low-class person and a ridiculous personality, Nabokov ought not to complain that the reviewer, though trying not to imitate Nabokov's bad literary manners, does not hesitate to underline his weaknesses. As a patient confidant of his long and helpless infatuation with the Russian language, I've always done my best to explain to Wilson his mistakes of pronunciation, grammar, and interpretation. As late as 1957 at one of our meetings, we both realized with amused dismay that despite my frequent comments on Russian prosody, he still couldn't scan Russian verse. Upon being challenged to read Eugene Onegin aloud, he started to do this with great gusto, garbling every second word and turning Pushkin's iambic line into a kind of spastic anapest with a lot of jaw-twisting haws and rather endearing little barks that utterly jumbled the rhythm and soon had us both in stitches. In the present case, however, things have gone a little too far. I greatly regret that Mr. Wilson did not consult me about his perplexities as he used to do in the past, instead of lurching into print in such a state of glossological disarray. One knows Mr. Nabokov's virtuosity in juggling with the English language, the prettiness and wit of his verbal invention, with his sadomasochistic Dostoevskian tendencies so acutely noted by Sartre. He seeks to torture both the reader and himself by flattening Pushkin out and denying to his own powers the scope for their full play. Here are some of the ghastly blunders Wilson makes in his piece. Why, he asks, should Nabokov call the word nietu an old-fashioned and dialect form of niet? It's in constant colloquial use, he goes on, and what I find one usually gets for an answer when, asks, when someone asks for a book in the Soviet bookstore in New York. Mr. Wilson mistakes the common colloquial nietu, which means there is not, we don't have it, etc., for the obsolete nietu, which he's never heard, and which, as I explained in my note, is a form of niet in the sense of not so, the opposite of yes. Aside from this desire both to suffer and make suffer, so important an element in his fiction, the only characteristic Nabokov trait that one recognizes in this uneven and sometimes banal translation is the addiction to rare and unfamiliar words. For example, rememorating, producement, curvate, rummers, familistic, deet, Shippon and Scrab. He refers to, and I quote, the character called and pronounced yaw, but more like yaw than as Nabokov says, like the yo in yonder. I don't think Mr. Wilson should try to teach me how to pronounce this or any other Russian vowel. The yaw sound, he suggests, is grotesque. It's quite wrong. It might render perhaps the German Swiss affinitive yaw, yaw, but it has nothing to do with the Russian yaw pronounced, I repeat, as in yonder. In a tedious and interminable appendix, or rather one that terminates only at the end of 92 pages, Nabokov expends a system of prosody also invented by himself 
which he claims may be accommodated to both English and Russian, but this system is ridiculous and will not work. Let me stop there. I suggest that Mr. Wilson's didactic purpose is defeated by the presence of such errors, and there are many more to be listed later, as it is also by the strange tone of his article. There is a drama in his Eugene Onegin, which is not Onegin's drama. It is the drama of Nabokov himself, attempting to correlate his English and his Russian sides. They continue to elude one another. Dear Bunny, a few days ago, I had occasion to reread the whole batch of our correspondence. It was such a pleasure to feel again the warmth of your many kindnesses, the various thrills of our friendship, and that constant excitement of art and intellectual discovery. Please believe me, I've long ceased to bear you a grudge for your incomprehensible incomprehension of Pushkin's and Nabokov's Onegin. Dear Volodya, I was very glad to get your letter. I am just now getting together a volume of my Russian articles. I am correcting my errors in Russian in my piece on Nabokov Pushkin, but citing a few more of your ineptitudes. I have included an account of my visit to you in Ithaca in a book that will be out this spring called Upstate, Records and Recollections of Northern New York, based on 20 years of my Talcottville diary. I hope it will not again impair our personal relations. It shouldn't. Best regards and love to Vera. The New York Times Book Review. To the editor, I seek the shelter of your columns to help me establish the truth in the following case. A kind correspondent Xeroxed and mailed me pages 154 to 162, referring to me as imagined by Edmund Wilson in his recent book, Upstate. Since a number of statements therein wobble on the brink of libel, I must clear up some matters that might mislead trustful readers. Bologna was playing the host with good humor, even joviality, which I believe is rather alien to him. The success of Pinin and the acclaim of Lolita, with the fuss about its suppression in Paris, have had upon him a stimulating effect. With no necktie and his hair ébouriff, consuming his little glasses of faculty port and sherry, as Frohawk at Harvard calls them, he was genial with everybody and seemed full of high spirits. But when I saw him the next day, after he had supervised a two-hour examination, at which, of course, Vera had helped him, he was fatigued, rather depressed, and irritable. What surprises me is not so much Wilson's aplomb as the fact that in the diary he kept while he was my guest in Ithaca, he pictures himself as nursing feelings and ideas so vindictive and fatuous that if he had expressed them, it would have made me demand his immediate departure. That night, his nerves were still on edge, but he exhilarated himself with drinks, in which, in spite of my gout, I joined him, and was at first amusing and charming, then relapsed into his semi-humorous, semi-disagreeable mood, when he is always contradicting and always trying to score. He has no direct knowledge of my past. He hasn't even bothered to read my speak memory, the records and recollections of a happy expatriation that began practically on the day of my birth. The method he favors is gleaning from my fiction what he supposes to be actual real-life impressions and then popping them back into my novels and considering my characters in that inept light. Vera always sides with Volodya, and one seems to feel her bristling with hostility if, in her presence, one argues with him. I had a very bad attack of gout and had to sit with my foot up, and even during the meals, I had to eat away from the table. I think it irked Vera a little to have to serve me thus. She so concentrates on Volodya that she grudges special attention to anyone else. Equally inconsistent with facts and typical of this Philistine imagination is his impression that at parties at our Ithaca house, my wife, quote, concentrated on me and grudged special attention to anyone else. I always enjoy seeing them. What we have are really intellectual romps, sometimes accompanied by mauling. And yet, Volodya is, in many ways, an admirable person. I am aware that my former friend is in poor health. A strong character, a terrific worker, unwavering in his devotion to his family, with a rigor in his devotion to his art, which is something in common with Joyce's. But in the struggle between the dictates of compassion and those of personal honor, the latter wins. The New York Times Book Review. To the editor, 
I am not surprised by Mr. Nabokov's reaction to my references to him in upstate. I do not see that any question of honor is involved in any of the matters he complains about. The only possible reply is to repeat the comment of Degas to Whistler. You behave as if you had no talent. Vera and I hope to see you before too much time elapses. Is there no chance of your getting to New York we, during we the spring vacation? At the end of May? We may still possibly get to your part of the world when Henry graduates from school and might drive over to see now, you. Now, around the 17th of this month, I have to take Dimitri to Harvard. Is there any chance of you and Elena being in Cambridge? If you're coming on the for the holidays, the let us know. We'll probably be staying at the Algonquin. We almost visited you on the way here. Unfortunately, I was on the verge of a breakdown. I really wasn't fit for company. Try me at the Princeton Club if you are going to be in New York. It was a pity not to find you in New York. I rang up the Princeton Club and slowly put down the receiver, as they do in the movies. I am sorry that we see so little of you. It's rather sad that we see each other so seldom. Thank <laughs> you.